Are you a mom launching kids into adulthood? If so, you need to know about my Empty Nest Mom Retreat. It is the gathering for moms who have at least one child over the age of 18 or who have launched them all and have a full empty nest. September 27th through the 29th are the dates, and Cedar Lake Retreat Center in Cedar Lake, Indiana is the place. You can fly into Chicago airports and drive to Cedar Lake in a little over an hour. Come join me. Best value registration is available through May 27th, and space is limited to just 100 moms, so don't delay. Check out jillsavage.org slash retreat to register today. And I picked up my Bible and began to read the book of John and John 13 through 18. And it was a promise that he was going to prepare a place for us, that he would give me peace, that he would grant me his Holy Spirit. And I just laid there with this Bible in my hands and I just kept reading and the tears started flowing. And that was the beginning of taking out that time to be alone with the Lord. You're listening to the No More Perfect Podcast, where we talk about strengthening the relationships that mean the most to you. I'm Jill Savage, and I live in normal Illinois. I'm committed to talking honestly about the messy, less than perfect, but normal stuff of life. I'm so glad you've joined me. Well, hello, friends, and welcome back to the No More Perfect Podcast. Many, many years ago, when I was a young mom, I read two books that I had actually picked off the shelf in a Christian bookstore, and those two books absolutely transformed my life and my mothering. One was titled A Mother's Touch, and the other was titled A Mother's Time. The author was Elise Arndt. In 1994, I led a team of women to plan the very first Hearts at Home conference, and I asked Elise to be one of the keynote speakers at that event. And eventually, Elise led a group of moms in Michigan to host the very first Hearts at Home Michigan conference. To say that this lady has been an influence in my life would be an understatement. She has had a huge influence in my life. Elise has now entered the 80th year of her life, but she still has a heart to invest in women and to invest in mothers. So I reached out to her and I'd asked her if she would join me today to invest in you. Welcome to the No More Perfect Podcast, Elise. Thank you so much. And as you were talking and just reminiscing, just brought back all those memories. We had a lot of fun, didn't we? Oh my goodness, we did. We had a lot of fun. And um, I'm, I am, I'm very, very, very grateful for, I'm grateful for your books. I'm grateful that you then caught the vision of Hearts at Home and brought it to other women. And you and I were talking before we pressed record, that very first Michigan conference, I had just had my fourth child and I was still nursing him. And so I brought him to the conference. And um, I remember, I think it was only the second time I'd been on an airplane, Elise. 
Really? I think so. I had been on an airplane once to go to a conference with my husband, maybe a couple of, maybe a year or two before that. And that was only my second time because I was scared to death. I remember being scared on the flight to fly and then being scared because I was bringing my baby on the flight to fly. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I do. I remember that so well. And he's now in his mid twenties and you know, life has changed so much since then, but so grateful. And I I have to say this, that I had had a vision for, um, moms to gather and to encourage one another. It was, I was in my late forties. I had just had it. I had a baby at 40 also, uh, in that that later Mm -hmm. in life. And, um, and, and I was praying, I was praying. And all of a sudden I received this phone call from you and God had given me the vision, but he gave you the legs Mm. and gave me the skeleton perhaps. And he gave you the ability to put the muscle on that vision, and it reached thousands, thousands of women. Remember that first conference, women standing in line to talk, and the line was endless. And, um, and, and they just, they with cheers, because they were affirmed in their position and their calling as a mother. Yes, yes. I remember that too. It was, it was like electric. And, and I just remember, in fact, I, uh, when I pulled out your books to prepare for this interview, I found that you had actually, now I had received, oh, here's another piece that I don't know if I ever told you, but when I got your books, so my husband was in Bible college at the time when I got your books and I, they impacted me so much that I, that I sent you a letter, like I reached out to you and you actually responded back to me. And I can still remember the day that I went to the mailbox and found your letter. And that was so very powerful. And I know as an author, you know, you can't always respond to every, uh, every time somebody reaches out. But you responded to that, and that was just so powerful for me. It was almost like it gave me another boost uh, to just keep on keeping on and heading in the right direction. But I remember um, when I pulled out the book, you had actually signed it at the conference. It was the date of the conference in 1994, and um, and so I must have gotten another copy from you that you could sign. So, um, so very very, very transformational for me because I think why your books were so transformational. I grew up in a home that, I mean, we were, it was a Christian home. We went to church, but I didn't see my uh, parents have a discipleship mindset for us as kids. Like it was almost like that was, we were a moral family at home, but we didn't, uh, I, I didn't really feel like I was being trained. I was being trained by the church, but not being trained at home in my faith. Mm-hmm. And your books really taught me how to bring, uh, really that home, that our home is a church. Yes. Yeah, that's, I think that's there. 
Yes. That's the first time that I was really like introduced to that concept. And I think I wanted it and I knew I desired it, but I didn't know how to do it. And so you really taught me how to do it. And that I think that was probably the biggest impact uh, on my life. And so much of what you talked about and what you taught about in your books and when I've heard you speak is uh, you learned a lot of lessons when you were a missionary mm-hmm. and you were a missionary, you and your husband, Warren, were missionaries in Papua New Guinea. Mm-hmm. And that really taught you a lot. Now, at least let's talk about that. How old were your kids when you went to Papua New Guinea? Paul was two and a, he's our oldest. He was two and a half. David was a year and I was pregnant with our third child, Elizabeth. Didn't know if she was a girl or a boy at that time, but it was uh, Elizabeth and she was born there. And then uh, John was also born there. So we had four children in a period of just five years. And uh, we had been married approximately four years when we left for Papua New Guinea. Um, and the, the women of the, of the, the tribal women were extremely influential in my life as far as emotional and physical care of a child. Uh, I learned a lot from my own mom, a, a lot spiritually, but a, a, she also was a very, um, how would you say, I guess the word that they use today is attachment parenting or mm-hmm. you know, where you're, you, you take your job seriously as, as a mother. And I'm not sure that's the definition of, that's not attachment parenting, but where you, you devote a lot of energy, a lot of time into the raising of these children. Mm-hmm. But they were the ones who taught me, they, they, they looked at me as being a very harsh mother. Um, I was, I was a westernized mother. Westernized mothers let their babies cry to, to go to sleep, to soothe themselves, mm-hmm. um, and, and to even teach them that, you know, moms are in charge, and you're the baby, and you have to do what I tell you to do, which doesn't always, um, they don't always cooperate. Uh, they don't sleep with, uh, Western moms don't sleep with their children. We have different rooms to sleep in, different beds to sleep in. And one of the things about a Western mom was that she tried to get rid of her children. Not She tried to find avenues for her children to be occupied other than her, herself. And uh, so they saw me as a Westerner coming into their tribal area and I did all these things with my children. As a matter of fact, one day I went up to Wasa, one of the, ma- the matriarch of our tribe. And I said, how do you mom stand at having your children with you all the time? You sleep with your children. You don't let your babies cry. Uh, they breastfed their babies. They didn't have any other means to feed their babies. They breastfed their babies. So their babies were with them constantly, either on their back, on their shoulders, sleeping with them. And I said, how do you, how do you stand? How do you, how do you deal with this? And Wasawanda looked at me, and this was the basis for the book, A Mother's Touch. She looked at me and she said, oh, Mrs., our babies are like little baby birds. We keep them under our wings until they lose their front teeth. When they lose their first front teeth, they'll fly, sprout their wings and fly away. And I thought to myself, I'm going to have to wait until they lose their front well, uh, That time I just had, had the babies, the toddlers. And uh, But her words really impacted 
impact my life. They they did that. This was a serious calling that God has given to me. I'm to be with these children, and God placed me in Papua New Guinea among people who would accept that type of philosophy. Here in the United States, we frown on that type of philosophy of of parenting. And so I kept my baby birds close to me. In New Guinea, when a mother, when a child lost its front teeth, the child was did not wear clothing until they lost their front teeth. Okay. They lived with the mother. Both boys and girls lived with, with the mother. They were considered babies until they lost their front teeth. And then the, when they when they finally fell out, the mother would take the little boy to the man's house, to the father's house, where his, where his father and all of his uncles lived. And he would she would present him to the father. The father then would dress the boy in the in the native attire and give him a steel axe and a steel bush knife. How old is a child when they lose their front teeth? Like five, seven, five, four. six, seven. Yeah, now picture you giving your child an axe and a and a bush knife. They were <laughs> no longer considered babies any longer. They were considered children. And now they were going to learn how to chop firewood, work in the gardens, clear the land, do all the things that the, the men do, tribal warfare, what, whatever they they were supposed to learn. And uh, uh, and and so I I look forward to these time the time when my children would lose their front teeth and and no longer be babies. But I think that's a mistake that we make in our culture is we look we try to find these avenues for um, releasing our children into the world and to keep them close to us. Uh, and, and because I was in Papua New Guinea, I was permitted to do that. Here in the United States, it is a, it's it's um, frowned upon. Sleeping with your baby is no longer something that's acceptable in our culture. Back when I was raising my children, that was something even in the United States that that we did, uh, especially during the early years of nursing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, so and they didn't let their babies cry. That was the other thing. They would get so upset with me when I would l- let Elizabeth cry for her nap, and they would come come up from their gardens they, because it echoed in the mountains. We were in the mountains. <laughs> They would hear this baby cry, and I had a soon I had a delegation of women surrounding my house, and they were saying, "Stop her from crying. She's going to get sick. She's go- she's going to get a headache. She's going to get sick, and she's going to die." Mm. And I think my baby's not going to die. This is what we do. No, no, please. You didn't hear a crying baby in the New Guinea culture in the Ibali Ibali tribe where we were located, because uh, as soon as a baby cried, they put the baby to the breast and soothe the baby. If you heard a crying baby for uh, prolonged periods of time, it was usually the baby was sick and was going to die. So that was their reasoning mm. behind that. So that that mm. was an Indian mother influencing my life. Not all those things are acceptable in the United States. And I, uh, I, I, I tell them from the perspective of living in New Guinea. But there is a little bit of truth in all of that. Mm-hmm. All of that. Mm -hmm. I think that it brings some balance to things. And I remember when I was reading your book, I mean, honestly, at that point in time, you know, my husband was in Bible college and I was thinking that, I mean, our plan was that I was going to go to work um, to support us. Like I had finished my college and my degree. And so I was going to go to work, but I couldn't find a job. So I was actually doing daycare in our home watching other people's children who were at Bible college. And um, 
And then I'm reading your book and I'm having this experience of caring for other people's children while I'm caring for mine. And just all of that together was really part of what really prompted me to become committed to being at home with my kids. Um, like I thought that I, I just hadn't valued motherhood as the profession that it was. And, uh, even for women who work outside the home, understanding, Hey, you've got two, full-time jobs. You know, this is really important what you're doing at home. So that it was, yeah, it was very transformational for me just reading about that and understanding um, just the importance of those, especially those early years. And here's what I will also say, Elise, having adopted a child at the age of nine and who didn't have that in his early years, um, you do see the impact of um, life turning out differently when children don't have an attachment to their parents, for sure. There's a saying, um, oh, and the, the author skips my mind right now, but she, she said this. She said, it takes 12 hugs a day in order to exist in this world. Eight hugs a day um in order to grow and four four hugs a day i've got it all mixed up i'm sorry it it takes it takes hugs i'm i'm just going to summarize yeah there it you takes go hugs touches everything yeah. to to grow these children and um and my suggestion is to touch them as much as as you possibly can their little faces their their little shoulders and as they get older you have to maybe reach up and just touch their shoulder or just slide by your teenager because they don't want to accept those hugs. But they're, yeah, and, and a child deprived of that. Yes. They, they did studies on this. Yes. Uh, child deprived of that touch who are left to lay in bed and cry, cry out. I talked to a, uh, a very well-known pediatrician. This is when I was younger in our era. When we came back from New Guinea, we were in the United States. And she told me that she actually was seeing children who were depressed at age of six weeks because they were left to cry and left alone. And a cry is a help, is a cry for help from, from the child. They, even if they just need you to pick them up or just talk to them, whatever, whatever it might be. And so I, I encourage moms to be, uh, to listen to those signals from our children. Yeah, absolutely. So Elise, let's talk for a moment. Um, while you were on the mission field, um, that, I mean, how, let's talk about how your faith grew in that season of time, because I mean, you're cut off from the world. This is way back. Was this in the seventies? Sixties. Sixties. Yeah. Okay. So there's no internet. There's no cell phones. No, there's no, no nothing. <laughs> nothing except my husband, my four children. We were the only Westerners on uh, the top of this mountain, four and a half hours walk from the nearest airstrip over mountains. And we had to survive with each other, which is very hard because we're all sinners. That's the first thing. <laughs> Second thing, we had nothing to depend upon except God. Nothing. We didn't have a church. I didn't have my parents. The closest thing I came to communication was writing letters. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would pour out my heart. 
And that's where my writing skills, um, I shouldn't say my writing skills because I had none back then. But, uh, that's you were developing the release, them. The, the, the release of my emotions and what I was experiencing yeah. were, were, were there. But um, how did I grow in my devotional life? I knew it was important to read the Bible. I had grown up memorizing a lot of scripture. I went to Christian schools uh, all through from elementary all the way through college. I met my husband who was a pastor, uh, who's a seminary. We went to seminary. He went to seminary and uh, I had to make that decision too about working and or staying home. But um, so I knew all those things. I knew that I was supposed to be doing them. But what happened, and, and this is basis for a mother's time, was that busyness began to envelop my life. Now, you would think living out on an outstation in the middle of nowhere in Papua New Guinea, you had all the time in the world. We had chickens to take care of. We had gardens to take care of. We had the, the I, I had a lot of manual physical labor that I, that I had to, to do. And so I was tired all the time. And four children, um, it was, it was extremely tiring and I didn't have time for God. I, I just felt, I mean, I, I prayed emergency prayers and I tried to read a scripture here and there, but then things began to happen in, uh, where we were put into desperate times where children got sick and we had no medical care. My husband got sick. My, I, I myself, very serious situations. And I began crying out more and more to God. And then I had a friend who would write me letters from, she was from the main valley where a mission was located. She would write me letters and say, how's your time alone with God going? And I didn't like her because, <laughs> because she was just challenging me. I didn't like her. And, and she was too super spiritual for me. And then finally, um, when I was going through these real hard times, and I, I remember the very first time I really sat down, or not sat down, lay down and read the Bible was when I had my four children uh, and they wouldn't take a nap. So I put them all in bed with me and two on one side, two on the other. And I said, now you're all going to take a nap at the same time. And mom's going to just lay here and read. And don't you say a word to me. And I picked up my Bible and began to read the book of John and John 13 through 19, uh, through uh, 18. And it was a promise that he was going to prepare a place for us, uh, that I that he was he would give us peace, that he would give me peace, that he would give me grant me his Holy Spirit. And I just kept reading these and reading, and pretty soon my children all fell asleep. And I just laid there with this Bible up, up, up in my hands, and I just kept reading, and the tears started flowing. And that was the beginning of taking out that time to be alone with the Lord, not for the purpose of study. Not for the purpose, but just getting to know who he was or is in my in my life. It's still something that my husband and I to this day follow is that the priorities of God first, not the things we're doing for him, but a relationship with him. Second, our family. And third is ministry. Yes. Yes. And this doesn't become easy to any of us because what are we creatures of? We're creatures of doing and not of being. Yes. Yes. Yeah. For him. Yeah. It transformed my life. Transformed me. 
And I would say the same. As you passed along that wisdom, it transformed me. Um, it really did. And so, so grateful for that. You talk in your book about something you call devotional living, mm-hmm. which is really, well, you explain. What is devotional living? It's it, My mother taught me this through example. She wasn't a Bible teacher, she through sitting down and and reading the Bible. My father and mother were um, only went to. My father didn't even graduate from elementary school, so their reading skills were not real, real good. Mm-hmm. And but they would teach us. They knew the Bible because they were taught the Bible. And my mother, when she would be working in the garden, she would say, "Elise," she says, "You're just like this little bean plant that I planted. Look at it, it's coming up, but look at all the weeds around it." We have to pull out those weeds. You know what those weeds are? They're sin. And she says you need to, to, to understand that there's sin in your life. And when you do something wrong, you ask Jesus to forgive you. He pulls it out. And then it gives room for you to grow. And then the sunlight and the water that we plant, that we put on these beans and these vegetables, they become a beautiful garden. And that's what God wants from your life. So that was her method of teaching, thunderstorms. She would teach us about um, that the that God sends a lightning to put nitrogen into the ground for the farmers. That He sends the thunder to shake up the ground so that the little plant has has air surrounding it. Oh, she would just go on and on. Every time I turned around, oh, and we as children, there were four of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she we met Jesus through her oh. stories. And she would relate everything back to the scriptures. Jesus, and then when we would sit and watch a storm come, she would tell us the story of Jesus being in the boat with his disciples and then saying, peace be still, that in the midst of storms, God can quiet. And she related a lot of her life to us about how God answered prayers. We were very poor. And I'll never forget, she told us a story. She came out of church one Sunday and, and was praying, Lord, we need money. We need, you know, and all of a sudden, a $5 bill floats down right in front of her. <laughs> she lost it and the wind picked it up, I guess. And, and, and she just rejoiced. She would sing a lot. And I remember her praying a lot. She lived a devotional life to Jesus. And so I was, I was taught that, um, subliminally, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to say that, but yeah, um, but it was it was caught. Yes. Instead of she wasn't teaching us per se, she, we caught it. And my sister and I both were talking one day, and I I said that's the same thing that I do with my kids. And she goes, "Oh, I learned it from mom." I said, "I did too." And yeah. so, as, as a family growing up, we learn those things and then pass them on. Now, one of the things that I think. Because your your podcast you no know, not is about not being perfect. Mm-hmm. My mom was not perfect, mm-hmm. and I was not perfect. And and you, I'm I'm sure you say this often to your audiences that we are not perfect moms, and we really mess up. Somebody asked me just recently, what was it? What what would you say would be the success in raising godly children? And I said, purely the grace of God, because I did enough things. That could have gone, had my children go off in this direction or that direction. And, 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 and there were, there are no perfect kids either. And so many times my children did go off in, in, in the wrong directions, but the grace of God. Mm-hmm. 
And yes. that's something that I learned as a child too. The forgiveness that God gives to us when we come to him. The number of times I went to sleep as a parent, as a mother, and cried my eyes out and said, God, I'm the worst mother in the world. Um, it's amazing my children and I survive in the same place together. I don't love, I don't like them right now. I do love them. And I mean, those are things that I would say. And then I, I would end that prayer saying, but you know, the desires of my heart, desires of my heart are to love and to serve you and to raise godly children. And the Bible says, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he will give you the desires of your heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just love um, how you just said, you know, you explained what devotional living is because really it's taking the concepts of the Bible and and just making them so accessible to our kids through everyday actions. So it's like, I think a lot of times we're like, I, you know, we need to have a, you know, we need to have a family meeting and we need to be opening God's word together. It's just as powerful to have to share parables, really. It's kind of like a parable, right? Yes. Yeah. It's just as powerful when we can take that and when we can look at the things around us through spiritual eyes and then pass those on to our children, our grandchildren. Yeah. And it, uh, um, it's just as important now with our grandchildren. Yes, it is. It is, it, especially in the world that they're growing up. It was relatively easy for me in Papua New Guinea raising four children at that time. Uh, isolated from everything that was going on in the world right now and we had a baby later in life when i was when i turned 40 and raising him in an altogether different world and now in a sense raising grandchildren Mm -hmm. in a whole different world yes grandmothers that are listening i think next to the christian mom the christian grandmother is one of the most influential uh women in, in in their their children's lives yeah I completely agree. Yep. I completely agree. So, Elise, there was another part of your book, um, and I don't remember if it was Mother's Touch or Mother's Time. I'm sure you do. And it was a a chapter was titled Wife First, Mother Second. Um, That was the first time I'd ever really been introduced to that concept. And uh, you shared a story that taught you this lesson. So will you share that story and talk about why this is important? Um, Okay. So here we had these four children, five years of age and under our, our, um, our fourth child was born in March and our, our, oldest had just turned five in January. My life uh, had lots of demands on it. Uh, my, my husband's life had lots of demands on it. Uh, being a, a pastor of eight churches, he was gone a lot. And we found ourselves drifting apart. Yeah, we were married five years, six years, seven years at that time. And our life was drifting apart. And uh uh, my my vocabulary always everything ended with ie i call it toddler ease where cookies potty two fees uh, <laughs> whatever ie and, and that's all i had to talk about with him and all he had to talk to me about was his work mm-hmm. and i became cold and listening and he beca- he also became and it wasn't something that was it was very subtle and i think mm-hmm. this is one thing you have to watch for is it's a subtle drawing away and uh it but god was always there and he wanted to teach us 
He wanted to teach us about loving each other, about priorities. Remember I said God was always first, um, especially for my husband. My husband was more devoted to the Word of God than I was during that time. But um, uh, God first, family second, and then your work third. And within that, that family, God has a beautiful divine order that is kind of lost in today's culture uh, and that is the husband is the head of the, uh, the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Then it says then the wives are to live in loving submission to their husbands and then children. Well, my children were my first priority. My, my God wasn't my first priority. My children were my first priority. And as a reason, and whenever priorities are out of line, your life is going to be out of line. Mm-hmm. So I was in this dilemma. I didn't. I I knew I loved my husband, but there were times when I didn't really like him, and on and on. And I'm sure most of you that are listening can identify with what I'm going to say. Um, it was a, a, a early, really early in the morning, uh, before the sun was up, that my husband uh, woke me up, and he said, "I'm in extreme pain." He said, "Please." He says, uh, "I don't know what's wrong with me," but he he was. Uh, profuse, profusely sweating, uh, going in and out of consciousness. Um, I'm on an outstation. The only contact I have with the hospital is a two-way radio. And that did, that schedule didn't come up until seven o'clock in the morning. So I could not get in contact with the doctor. I knew we were going to have to evacuate by helicopter, uh, to the airstrip. And so I, um, made arrangements, got diapers ready, washed. I was washing diapers. I think it was three o'clock in the morning, taking care of my husband. Children weren't up yet. Finally, I got a hold of the doctor and the doctor said, we have to get him in to uh, the coast. We don't have surgical things here in the highlands. We'll get him into the coast. We'll send a helicopter out. I said, fine. Continue to get ready. Finally, the the doctor called back and he said, we have a helicopter uh, available, uh, but he said, uh, they will take you to the airstrip. The only it's a it's a small helicopter. The only ones that will be able to go are you and your husband and your infant son, your three children. You'll have to leave behind. I said, doctor, you don't understand. Can't leave my children behind. There's no one to take care of them. He said, if you can get them to the airstrip, there was another missionary family that was about an hour and a half from the airstrip. They will come and take care of them, but they will be left unattended for an hour and a half. I didn't know what I was going to do. The helicopter came. We were able to get Warren, uh, excuse me, the first three children on the plane. Paul was five. David was three and a half. Elizabeth was two, somewhere Mm -hmm. around there. And then I had an infant son, John. And I put these three children on that helicopter. I looked at Paul and these big blue eyes. And if you knew Paul, you wouldn't have left him alone with anywhere without his mother for any period of time. I looked at him and I said, Paul, you're in charge. You are taking care of David and Elizabeth. And he shakes his head. He doesn't know what's going on. Goes into the helicopter. The helicopter takes him down to the airstrip. Next next shuttle was my husband and myself. And I landed at that airstrip and saw my children off in the distance standing on a hill. And I knew at that time uh, that I was going to have to leave my children behind and go with my husband because I didn't know if he was going to make it or not. And I got on that helicopter, tears streaming down my face, saying, Lord, forgive me for leaving these children, but I just, I can't. I, I believe not everyone will agree with that decision, 
But at that time, that was a decision that I had had to make. I knew my children were going to be okay. I knew that Karen and Paul, these friends of ours, were going to be able to make it down there to pick up our children, to bring them back to their house and to look out for them for possibly the next six weeks or whatever long, how long it would take for my husband to recuperate. And they did. They they were, when I got landed at the hospital, my husband was rushed in for emergency uh, surgery. And um, um, I was with him for three weeks. And during that time, there a love developed between us that had been missing for a long time mm -hmm. as we listened to each other and that how he knew that I had given up being with those children. I had never left my children before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm my children and um, for to be with him. And I look back on that and I, I still I get very emotional inside mm -hmm. um, because a mother's attachment to her children, it, you, you just can't explain it. Mm -hmm. um, you, you'd give your life for your children. And yet it felt, you know, I was, I was just torn. But that that was the beginning of a building of relationships. We've been married for 60 years. My husband, it'll be in August, 60 years. And I still love this guy. And a lot of people are still together at 60, but they don't love each other. I, yeah, I don't know. But we love each other. We, we're enjoying retirement. We're, we're serving the Lord together. And um, that didn't come, that didn't happen by accident. It came through a lot of hard times. And after that, I learned that I was a wife first, a mother second. My children will be gone eventually someday, mm -hmm. married, off to college, whatever, living on their own. But that husband remains. And what you invest in that husband. Now, one of the things that I, I have to, to, to clarify is that there are times in your marriage when your children will come first. When they're throwing up in the middle of the night, when your husband wants to have sex and one of the kids starts crying and or whatever it, it might be. Mm -hmm, right. Uh, we know those circumstances in, in, in our life. That's where if he knows in his heart that you've chosen him, he'll he'll for a period of time give you that grace to be able to take care of those children because there's, there are times when they demand that. Mm -hmm, right. Urgent is there, but uh, on the whole, that that he's 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 first. We made a pact then too that when the, when he would come home, either if it was from a walk or would, whatever walk they call them walkabouts, visiting his church, that the children we told the children, Daddy kisses Mom first, then he'll hug you, um, and they began to understand when we wanted to talk, we couldn't go anywhere on a date. Right. We would go into the bedroom and we close the door and say, "You sit outside of the of of the of the room and you can talk. Uh, you we're, we're going to talk. You you can sit out there and then when we're we're ready. You can come in." And mm. that was yeah. The, the, you you will find coping mechanisms. We recommend that couples, as I'm sure you do too, get away on a date mm -hmm. or even for a weekend. We were told, as uh, a pastor and his wife told us get away once a weekend and we thought or one once a once a month for for a couple of days if that's during the middle of the week or the weekend and just be alone with each other 
so you can talk. We thought that was impossible. And then all of a sudden, we began to find creative ways that that could take place. So that's that was that. Sorry. That, that chapter is in um, uh, A Mother's Time. And um, I, I wrote it. And when I read it last night, I read it again last night, had my husband read it. And I thought, so much truth there. Yes. I talk about submission in, in that chapter, too, because we we in our world today have the wrong view of submission. Submission to many women is servanthood. And no, it's a willing choice of the heart, not of the actions, but of the heart and then the actions. Yeah. Yeah. I remember after reading that chapter, um, I, let's see, our youngest, we only had three at the time, and our youngest, I believe, was two, and we were given a gift. Um, Mark was in a small group of men, and uh, one of the men had won three trips for two to Rome, Italy. And he came to Mark and said, I want to give you and Jill one of these trips. Uh, he'd won them through his um, his business. And he said, I really want you guys to go with us. And my initial response was, um, I don't, I don't want to go on that trip. I don't want to leave my kids. I don't want to fly over that much water. I don't want to be gone for 10 days. I don't want to be that far away from my kids. And I had read your book before, um, but I think I, it was I had picked it back up and came across that chapter, and uh, immediately it was like the Lord spoke to me through just the title of the chapter, "Wife First, Mother yeah. Second. And I was like, I have to go on that trip. Like I absolutely have to go on that trip. And I remember crying on the way to the airport, crying as we flew across the ocean. Because I was, I was just sure the plane was going to crash. I was sure my children were going to be um orphans. I mean, I was, I was awfulizing the whole thing in my mind. I'm like, I don't want to be here. But we got there. And like you and Warren experienced while he was in the hospital, we we began to connect, we began to talk, we began to fall in love again. And eye contact, eye contact, yes. smiles and laughter. Yeah. Yes. And I remember 10 days later, as we flew home, I flew home crying right. because, because I didn't want to go home. <laughs> I so... Had enjoyed my time with my husband. And it wasn't that I didn't want to return home to my kids, but I just had this new experience. And we really, we trans, I mean, we completely transitioned how we operated when we returned home from that trip. And I, I used that. Say it again. To, to keep it alive because it takes a lot of work and th this is something that we just don't want to we you know a friend of mine said after i volunteered to give her children goldfish she said to me elise don't give me anything that has eyes i don't need another pair of eyes staring at me and demanding anything from me and so when we talk about these things it's work it is yes. And we don't mm -hmm. like that, but it is worth the investment so that you relax when you get to be my age. You mm -hmm. know, you relax a little bit more, you have more fun. You, yeah. 
Mm-hmm. That is so very, very true. And in our No More Perfect Marriages book, we talk about something that we call the slow fades of marriage. And a slow fade is like an erosion of connection. And um, and we've added some slow fades even since the book came out, you know, things that we've realized. And one of them is the slow fade of child-centeredness. That when we're child-centered instead of being marriage-centered, then I've, you know, I first heard it from you, wife first, mother second. I've later heard it said marriage over minors. Um, that's another way to, to kind of say it. And then, uh, certainly marriage centered versus child centered. And, uh, all of those are great reminders of the importance because it also gives our kids security. Right. Like sure. when they know that mom and dad are okay, their world is okay because we're their world. So very important. Yeah. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Oh, this has been such a good conversation, Elise. Thank you. Thanks. I have enjoyed it as much as, uh, and just reconnecting. Oh, yeah. It's been so, so good. And, um, I was, I'm wondering as we kind of bring this to a close, um, first, you and I talked to the, your books are no longer in print, but, you know, there are used book, there's online used books, sometimes even through Amazon, you can find used books. So a mother's touch, a mother's time are the titles of, uh, your books. Um, and you occasionally hang out on Facebook. So, People can connect with you on Facebook, although you are retired and not really out there managing that a whole lot. Um, But I'm uh, wondering, would you be willing to pray for our audience and those that are listening? Oh, Lord. Lord, these moms that are listening, um, and some of them are in critical situations, uh, either in their marriages or uh, with children. And I just thank you so much for your grace, for your mercy, Father, through your son, Jesus Christ, that has been given to us, that you you desire for us to be uh, godly moms, uh, godly women. And with everything that's coming at us, it's so very difficult, Lord. But your strength has been promised to us through your Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And through your word, your presence, and your peace uh, have been promised. And so we go into this day and into the rest of our lives, Lord, uh, depending upon you, knowing that that your will and your desire for us is to be women of influence for you in uh, our families, but also uh, wherever we go. And we ask that um, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, with your strength, with your power, so that we would be able to live these lives. Teach us, Lord. I thank you for the times that you have taught Jill and and, and myself, my husband, Jill's husband, um, the direction that we're supposed to go. And it was not always easy. But, Lord, you, uh, you have promised us that if we come to you that um, – you would make our our burdens light Mm -hmm. and um, the things that we do, Lord, we just um, thank you for them, even for those hard times, because we're being 
formed into the women that you want us to be. So be with these moms. I pray a blessing upon them. I ask that uh, their hearts would be turned to you and that they would delight themselves in you and you will grant them the desires of their heart. And we pray all of this in, in the name of Jesus and for his kingdom's sake here on this earth, for our children to come to know of him as their Lord and their Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining me today on the No More Perfect Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe and follow so you don't miss any future conversations. You can find the show notes and links to anything we talked about over on jillsavage.org slash podcast. I hang out on Facebook and Instagram and would love to connect with you there. You can find me under the name jillsavage.author. One more thing, we have three free ebooks that we'd love to give you. You can find them at jillsavage.org slash free. See you next week where we'll have another conversation about the real stuff of life and relationships.